The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Galatians chapter 5. Well, in Galatians so far, we've seen that the law brings a curse. That the law of Moses was never intended to save. Instead, it uh, shut up the people of God under sin. And it brought a curse because they could never keep it all. We saw that the law was never intended to justify or make anyone righteous. It was intended to condemn and be a jailer until Christ came. We also saw that Paul taught righteousness can only come by faith. It can only come by faith. And Paul goes on to say that faith is what places us into Christ. In fact, the life we now live, he says in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And this union with Christ, Paul has taught us so far in Galatians, the Father, because of union with Christ, places His Holy Spirit of adoption into us so that we cry out, Abba, Father, and we are called sons of God. And remember, ladies, that, that's not meant to be a, 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 a perjurative thing. It's meant to be something that encourages you because you are an inheritor of everything Christ inherits. You have inheritance privileges as a son of God. And then we see that Christ, because we're in Him, He sets us free from bondage. The bondage of slavery to sin and the bondage of the law. And that's what Paul has been talking to up into Galatians 5. And now we're going to see what does this freedom actually look like? What is this freedom Paul's been talking about? In fact, he was so frustrated with the Galatians that he had told them in chapter 1, I'm astonished that you're so quickly turning from the Gospel to a different Gospel, but really it's not even another Gospel. It's not good news. It's bad news because it actually puts you into bondage and slavery. And so he's been concerned throughout the book with freedom. And what this freedom looks like. In fact, chapter 5, verse 1, we saw last week, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. But if you're like me, sometimes it's... He's been talking in, in, in theological, in intellectual realms about the doctrine of Christian freedom. But the question that would arise is, well, what does that look like in my life? How do I go about living in freedom? I understand now doctrinally that I'm set free in Christ and I don't want to submit again to the bondage of slavery and I don't want to think I'm going to earn God's favor by my works. And so what does this look like day to day? How can I go out of this service today and actually practice living in Christian freedom? And that's what he's going to go on to talk about. He's very pastoral. He's very wise here in chapter 5. And beginning in th verse 13, he basically says that we're free to serve in love. That what Christian freedom looks like is it looks like slavery. Now, the word service, doulos in this passage, can be translated slave. So it's quite ironic that he takes this word that means slavery and he says, guess what? Christian freedom means you're free to serve. But it's now service, not out of duty, but out of love. 
It's not an obligation and a demand to keep. Now it is coming from the innermost part of who you are because your affections have been changed and you love the Father. Now you're going to love His children. You're going to love the people of God and you're going to serve them motivated not out of duty and obligation and some sort of bondage to the law. You're going to love them because the Spirit of God is producing love in your heart and it's going to overflow in service to one another. And so verses 13 to 15, Paul begins by saying, love fulfills the law. Let me read this for you. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. In other words, Paul says in verse 13, don't use your Christian freedom for self-indulgence in sin and idolatry. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce in his commentary says, don't use your freedom as a springboard for the flesh. Don't use that as the launching pad for you just to say, hey, I'm free. I'm going to go do what I want. I'm going to find my sufficiency in myself. You see, true Christian freedom, this is what Paul's been saying all along, it is the antidote both to legal bondage and to what we would say is antinomianism. This living against the law, outside of the law. I can do whatever I want. It's sort of uh, the problem of all youth in all generations across all cultures. <laughs> I can do whatever I want and you're not the boss of me. And we all did it, didn't we, when we were young? You see, this Christian freedom, if we're being immature in our thinking, that's how we would think of it. We're set free from the law. We're no longer under God's law. We're no longer in bondage to it. What does that freedom mean? All restraints are off and I can do whatever I want. And how does that work out for you? Turns into another form of bondage. And so that's what Paul is going on to say. He says, you were called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And the word flesh here is this remnant of our sin nature that if it's left unchecked, it produces works of the flesh. I'll talk more about that later. Paul's going to speak about this in verses uh, 19 to 21. But in verse 13, freedom doesn't mean all restraints are cast off and we can do whatever we want. No, what does he say here? You were called to freedom, therefore, rather than using it as a springboard for the flesh, through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. This service is not compelled from without, however, by the law. It's by the Spirit that love is, is created. It's wrought within us. And this is true freedom. This is Romans 5.5. 5, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit of God. It's been poured out. Phil Howard God's kicked over a bucket of love in our hearts, he says, by the Spirit. This idea of it just being poured out, overflowing in us. It's not a meager amount. It's not a flimsy amount. It's not like God is stingy and says, well, I'm going to give you a little bit of this. And you better work to do the rest. That's how some parents think of it, right? Here, I'm going to give you a little bit, but you better work hard and do the rest. This is not how our Father in Heaven is. He lavishes his love upon us by His Spirit and produces it in us. 
And so, ironically, Christian freedom means freedom to serve. Freedom to be a slave. There is a picture of this in the Old Testament under the Jewish slavery laws where after a period of time when a slave was to be set free, if he decided he loved his master and didn't want to be set free, he could permanently become a slave of that master. But this is something even greater than that because this Christian freedom isn't just dependent upon one man's love for another. It's dependent upon our Creator in Heaven's love for us and Him uniting us to His Son. Notice how in verse 13 He says, through love serve one another. So often we think of Christianity as individualized. I've been saved. I've been delivered. I've been forgiven. I've been declared righteous. I'm free. That's all true. But what does He say? It's freedom in the context of community. You're now free to serve one another in love. This means we have a oneness in Christ. That this love that's produced in us, He's going to say in verses down here at the end, um, verses 22 and following, this Spirit that is producing the fruit of the Spirit in us is because we belong to Jesus Christ. We're one in Him. We've been united to Him. And so we've been set free for a purpose, and it's not to live as a Lone Ranger Christian. Independent. I was just talking to somebody at the coffee shop a couple weeks ago about this. They said, oh yeah, church isn't really for me. You know, I I believe in the Lord. I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. But you know, the church, it's just not for me. He basically said he finds his his spiritual growth and his spirituality on the internet. Christian forums and Bible studies and listening to radio preachers, etc. And I wanted to shake him and say, oh, you've been deluded. Because Christian freedom is in the context of community. It's not by yourself. That's actually going to lead you to bondage. Because you're separated from the body of Christ that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians. We all need one another. And you've been gifted to serve one another. And every gift is necessary. And every gift is interdependent upon one another. And as we're going to see, all of these fruit of the Spirit happen in the context of community. How can you show love if you're by yourself? How can you have joy and peace in the midst of trying people and trying circumstances if you're by yourself? And so on. Loving service to the church, the community of faith. Freedom cannot happen through independent, self-sufficient living. That's what freedom sounds like. Because in America, freedom is tied to the dollar. If you want to be free, you've got to be rich then you can buy whatever you need. And so freedom is equated to self-sufficiency. Independence. But we never find our sufficiency in ourself. In fact, the Gospel that Paul is trying to refute this bad news of the Judaizers is that they were trying to find their sufficiency in themselves. He says, listen, church, the only sufficiency you can ever find is in Christ. That's what we just saying. All I have is Christ. And so true Christian freedom cannot happen through independent, self-sufficient living. When Christ sets us free, we are free indeed, but we're free in the context of community. Our sufficiency is in Him. Our dependence is upon Him by the Spirit to produce life and love in us so that we can serve. 
And this idea of love is so critical to Paul's understanding of what true freedom is. We're free to serve in love. And that's not just a tack-on sort of addendum. You serve in love when it's ideal, but sometimes you serve even when you don't love. For Paul, this is the sum of what all of the Old Testament was talking about. In fact, if we don't have time to turn back there, but if we looked at Leviticus 19, we would see that the real demand of the law of Moses is love. Leviticus 19.18. In fact, uh, let's turn over to Luke 10. I I want you to see this, that the, the, the rich young ruler got it. What is the real demand of the law? What is the greatest commandment? Luke 10.27 I'm sorry, it's not the rich young ruler here, it's the lawyer that wanted to put him to a test. Verse 25, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? (laughs) He's a lawyer. So how do you read the law, lawyer? How do you interpret it? What's your take on the law of Moses? And the lawyer says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. You get a star. Now do this and you'll live. See, see the, lawyer, the, rich, the, the lawyer here, he got it. And Jesus says, you got the right answer. But there's something else. Now go ahead and do it. And you'll live. Of course, apart from the Gospel, we can't do it. That's what the law of Moses says. We can't do it. The demand is love, and we cannot love God and love our neighbor apart from the Gospel. This is what Jesus taught. To love God and love our neighbor is the greatest commandment. On these hang the law and the prophets. Mark 12. And back in Galatians, if you turn back to Galatians, go to chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. This is what Paul in verse 2 calls the law of Christ. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this law of Christ is put in contrast to the law of Moses. The law of Moses is slavery and bondage. The law of Christ is freedom and love and service by the power of the Spirit. And this is what is demanded by the law of Moses but can never be given. This is what is demanded by the law of Christ and is given through His Spirit who dwells in us. And so we have great hope. This is why Paul tells the Galatians, why would you ever leave this law? Why would you ever leave this Gospel? This law of Christ where you have the power to do what God commands you to do. Because He's given you His indwelling Spirit. You see, this passage here in Galatians 5 teaches that apart from the Spirit, we can never obey the demand to love. But by the Spirit, we can fulfill the whole law. Look again at 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's not saying that every single law of Moses is basically 
um, can be shrunk down to just loving your neighbor? Obviously, there are laws that didn't deal specifically with loving people. Some of them dealt with loving God. But what he's saying is if you, by the power of the Spirit, can actually love your neighbor, you, by the power of the Spirit, are going to fulfill the whole law. Apart from the Spirit, you could never keep the law, and you're under bondage. But by the Spirit, we can fulfill the whole law of God. Then he gives a warning here to the Galatian church. He says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out, you're not consumed by one another. And this is an incredibly dire warning to this church. He tells them, not only have you departed the gospel in following after these Judaizers, but like a pack of wild animals that prey on one another, with your lack of love and lack of service, it could lead to the disintegration of your fellowship Galatians and the disappearance of your churches all over Galatia if left unchecked. Man, that is no joke. For us here, think about that. If we lack love, if we lack service in our church to one another, it will lead to our extermination. That's what Paul's saying here. Isn't this what he warned the Ephesian church in Revelation? You're able to discern right and wrong. You know doctrine. You know truth. I have this against you, Jesus says. You left your first love. Repent or I will remove my lampstand from you. You will cease to exist as a church, Jesus tells them. Wow. So what's the answer? How do we serve one another in love and live in true Christian freedom? Paul says the answer is found in verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The answer is walking by the Spirit. The Spirit overcomes the flesh. That's what verses 16 to 26 are going to deal with. What does he mean by walk by the Spirit? I want to just point out a few verses in this context. He says in verse 16, I say walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then he goes on in verse 18 and says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then he says, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So he has the word walk. He has the word led. He has the word uh, fruit, as in bearing fruit. The Spirit produces life in us, fruit in us. We are living by the Spirit, and if we are, and in fact we are, we need to keep in step with Him. And so walking by the Spirit means letting our conduct be directed by the Spirit of God. Letting our conduct be directed by the Spirit of God. Letting Him direct our lives. It's, it, it's real simple. Very hard to do. Not hard to understand, hard to do, because we're so prone to just say, hey, I'm the boss, and I'm in charge, and I want to direct my life the way I want to direct it. I'll do it myself. Verse 16. It's a promise, too. It's not, it is a command, but it's also a promise. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. They're mutually exclusive. 
There's a great quote, I have it here for you, from Richard Lovelace in his Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And he says, this is what it means to walk by the Spirit. We should make deliberate effort at the outset of every day to recognize the person of the Holy Spirit. That's the, that's the first thing. Remember, He's in us. Recognize Him. To move into the light concerning His presence in our consciousness and to open up our minds and to share all our thoughts and plans as we gaze by faith into the face of God. We should continue to walk throughout the day in a relationship of communication and communion with the Spirit mediated through our knowledge of the Word. So how do we have communion and relationship with the Spirit? Through the Word, he says. Relying upon every office of the Holy Spirit's role as counselor mentioned in Scripture. He's alluding to Jesus' upper room discourse in John when Jesus says, if I go away, I'm going to send another comforter, another helper, who's going to be not only with you, He's going to be in you. We should acknowledge Him as the illuminator of truth and of the glory of Christ. He's going to reveal, illuminate things in the Word to us, and what He's going to show us is the glory of Christ. We should look to Him as teacher, guide, sanctifier, giver of assurance concerning our sonship and standing before God, helper in prayer, and as the one who directs and empowers witness. Imagine if we did that. We get up in the morning. We, we take to, why do we take time to pray and read the Word? Because we want to align and calibrate our minds and our hearts to ultimate reality. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us. The indwelling presence of God Almighty to recognize Him, to go to His Word, to have it revealed and open to us and see wonderful things from it. And then to live in communion with Him as we walk through our day and go through our day. Why in the world is this important? He says, verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The lusts of the flesh. For the desire, verse 17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The reason why this is so important is our life is one of spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. If we don't get up in the morning and realize that we are in a battle, we are going to be sidelined at best and casualties at worst. Now that we are related to the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the enemies of God actively oppose us because they oppose Christ. The flesh, for example, produces appetites within us that opposes the desires of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what we see in verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh and they're opposed to one another. Not only that, the devil... What does 1 Peter say? He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we're to resist him how? Standing firm in the faith. How are we going to stand firm in the faith if we don't remember and calibrate our thinking to what is ultimate reality? Walking in the Spirit. 
And the devil tries to keep us. He's roaring. He doesn't want us to trust in Christ. He wants us to trust in ourselves. And then he has us. Not only that, we have another enemy, don't we? This world system. This world system that appeals to our hearts and our affections. And it tries to take us away from the affection that ought to be reserved for God the Father. Frank Griffith has this uh, diagram. I don't know where you got it from, but uh, it's really good. It's in his uh, Christian Life Notes. But I wanted to show it to you. Look at how you have the indwelling presence of God inside of the Christian. Father, Son, Spirit. This is what we see taught in John. That because the Spirit of God is in us, Christ is able to settle down and make His home in our hearts. And because Christ is in us, the Father's in us. This is what we see Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse talking about. When the Helper comes, He's going to dwell in us. And because He's in us, Christ is in us. And because Christ is in us, the Father's in us. And, and the enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world appeals to our affections. And the Father is to be the object of our affections, according to 1 John 2.15. And the world is designed to divert that love. I'll never forget the picture. I know I've said it a number of times, but one of the Puritans, um, John Flavel, he uses this illustration that Satan is a master fisherman. He's a master fisherman. And he uses the hook. He baits the hook of our flesh with the bait of this world system. And he knows how to use different bait for each of us. He, see, we're not all tempted by the same desires. And Satan's a master fisherman and he knows how to bait the hook of our flesh with the lures of this world. And all of it is designed to take us away from making the Father the object of our affections. And Satan is the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to undermine our trust in Christ. The Son is to be the object of our trust. We are placing our faith and trust in Him. Believing the Gospel. And Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within. And we need to remind ourselves of what's true in Christ. When he said it's finished at the cross, he meant it. And here, the flesh produces competing desires in Galatians 5.17. And the Holy Spirit is to be the source of our desires. And so we're in a war. But the wonderful news of the Gospel is that this is a war we can win. We already have won it in Christ and we're going to experience victory. Romans 8.2 The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so this is why Paul says in verse 18 here in Galatians, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not in bondage. Remember, that's what he's he's saying. The law of Moses is bondage. And if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And he goes on to say in Romans 8 in that chapter, all who are led by the Spirit of God, you're sons of God. Same thing he said in chapter 4 of Galatians. You've been adopted into the Father's family. You have a new identity. You're a son of God. You've been united to Christ. 
You have the Spirit of God inside of you stirring up family affections for God as Father. You cry out, Abba, Father. And so this is a war we're going to win. This isn't as if you are left to your own devices. God put you on the front lines and said, good luck. No. Christ is the one fighting for us. The Spirit of God is producing these competing desires in us from these, this remnant of flesh that's in us. In fact, he goes on to say, verses 19 to 21, what these works of the flesh are. The works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, I. I don't think we need to go through every single one of these and explain what these are. You know why? He says in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. We know all about this list. Don't we? We've, we've participated in these works of the flesh. They're evident. In fact, there's lots of things like these that we can go, oh yeah, I know what that category is. These works of the flesh are evident. And here, when we're in war and we're competing, if we're led by the Spirit, we're not under the law, we're not in bondage, we're not going to be producing these works of the flesh because we're not going to be, verse 16, gratifying the desires of the flesh. We're not feeding the tiger, as it were, and letting him grow strong. We're letting him get weakened and starved. Uh, Frank, in his Christian Life Notes, has a, a, a great path of the fleshly walk, and it's right out of this passage and also in Romans 7. There's a downward progression to a fleshly walk. And this is what Paul is getting at here in Galatians. First, the flesh gains a foothold through what Romans 7, 5 calls sinful moods, the moods of the flesh. And once a believer is under the influence of these sinful moods of the flesh in Romans 7, he begins to experience specific lusts of the flesh. Here what he says in Galatians is called desires of the flesh. Verse 16, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires, the lusts of the flesh. And you see, but if we don't walk by the Spirit, when these lusts are conceived, James says in James 1, they give birth to specific works of the flesh. And that's what we see in verses 19 to 21. These works of the flesh are evident. Remember what I said, Satan's a master fisherman. He knows that we're all tempted by different things. So you might look down that list and say, man, I'm not given to sorcery. (laughs) I never played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. Actually, I did, but that's fake sorcery, right? Anyway, he says, that was a joke, you can all laugh. The works of the flesh are evident. I might not be given to sorcery, but man, I know what jealousy is like and fits of anger. I'm intimately acquainted with that. And these lusts of the flesh, when these moods are not dealt with, they lead to specific desires and lusts. And when they conceive, James says, they give birth to specific works of the flesh. Wow. And that ends up leading to enslavement to sin. 
1 Corinthians 5.11 says that you can become so enslaved to a sin that it becomes life-dominating and it's characterizing your life. It's like calling someone a drunkard. You know that they've been so enslaved to alcohol, so enslaved to giving in to drunkenness that that characterizes their life and they're dominated by it. And what do they need? They need the power of the Spirit of God to break that. And that's the good news of the Gospel that it happens. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, such were some of you, but you're washed and you're cleansed and you're sanctified in Christ Jesus. And so Christian freedom doesn't mean you're free to do whatever you want. If you're free to do whatever you want, you're going to go down this path. And the end result is is terrible. Perhaps you've experienced that in your life. Paul says, when I give you this command to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to produce fruit of the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit, I'm not trying to place you under the burden of a new law that is slavery. I'm trying to give you freedom in Christ. Because I tell you what, that path is not freedom. That path is bondage. You see, we're never completely free from all rule. That's like a skydiver saying they're free when they don't have a parachute. Yeah, they got freedom. There's nothing encumbering them as they're in free fall. How's it going to work out? So he says, this is what we must do is we must be led by the Spirit keeping in step with Him. And so verses 22-26 to He goes on to say, but the fruit of the Spirit... Oh, he says in verse 21, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, practice such things as a lifestyle, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you have a lifestyle of practicing these sins, you need to ask yourself if you really have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. Or if you've placed your faith in something else. Because those who practice such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, what's produced in the life of a Christian by the indwelling Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. What does he mean by that? That puzzled me for a long time in my Christian life. What does he mean by against such things there is no law? Well, the law may prescribe certain forms of conduct and prohibit other forms of conduct, but love and joy and peace and the rest, they cannot be legally enforced. What he means by that is what he says in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Love is not against the law, in other words. Love is not against the law. In fact, we we saw earlier love is the fulfillment of the law. A vine does not produce grapes by an act of parliament. They're the fruit of the vine's own life. That's the picture here. Abiding in Christ and the life that's produced by abiding in Him doesn't come by an act of the law. It comes by the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. And so the conduct which conforms to the kingdom of God 
is not produced by any demand, not even the law, but it is the fruit of the indwelling ministry of the Spirit that God gives us as a result of what He's done in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. This is what we have. So against such things as these, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, there is no law. Thomas Jefferson in his uh, book of virtues, he tried to say he was going to just start learning one of these one a month. He was going to, you know, for one month practice love. The next month he was going to practice joy. The next month he was going to practice peace. And it's exactly opposite of what Paul's teaching here. He's not saying that these are a list of things that you need to begin to do and practice as if it's a new law. No, he says, this is the evidence that you have been born again and the Spirit is living inside of you is these will be produced. And notice he doesn't say fruits plural. He says fruit singular. You get one, you get them all because you have the Spirit. And he doesn't say they're the fruit of Ryan or the fruit of whoever else. They're the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit produces them. And so, as we're led by the Spirit, as we're keeping in step with the Spirit, because we live by the Spirit, we will produce the fruit of the Spirit. And this should be a great encouragement to us when we see these things in our life. When we have peace in the midst of circumstances where nobody should have peace. When we have joy in the midst of suffering. When we show kindness to people who don't deserve it when we're faithful, faithful to God and faithful to our spouses and faithful to our children and faithful to our relationships, when we show self-control and say no to sin and temptation and pleasure, it's not because we're so great. It's because the Spirit of God is living inside of us producing these things. And here he says, verse 24, those who belong to Jesus Christ... We've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's like he's going back to Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and He gave Himself up for me. And so he's saying the indicative leads to the imperative. And that's what verses 25 and 26 are saying. If we live by the Spirit, or since we live by the Spirit, this is a reality for Christians, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Don't become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So what do we do with the flesh? How can we start applying this now? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? We, we saw from Lovelace's quote that we're to recognize the Spirit's ministry in our lives, His indwelling presence. We're to be in the Word so that He can illuminate our hearts and our minds with the Scriptures. We know that the Spirit is waging war against the flesh in us, so how do we stop that path? How do we deal with sinful moods and sinful desires? Well, Scripture's pretty clear. First thing we do as we starve it out. We deprive our hearts and our minds of things that, sin, that feed upon sin and lust. This is what John Piper has spent his whole life trying to teach, is that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. This is what Jonathan Edwards taught, that true religion consists largely in the affections. And our affections for God as Father is produced by the Spirit. 
And at His right hand is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And so as C.S. Lewis said, if we go after the lusts and the sins of the world, basically we're settling for mud pies in the slum when a holiday is offered at the sea in Christ. So we starve it out by seeing the glory, the sufficiency, the beauty of Christ. This is why we preach Christ over and over and over is we want you to see Him in His all-sufficiency. We want you to not only see Him, but we want you to revel in Him and rejoice in Him and, and, and have it fill your mind and your affections and everything so that there is no place for the lusts of the flesh. That's what I desire in my own life. We also are to cut it out. That's what Jesus said. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount? If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. He said, be drastic. Cut away things that become habitual occasions for sin. Become aware of the consequences of sin in this life and be willing to take drastic measures to remove it. You know how it is. It's like getting on railroad tracks. You know where the entrance to that path to sin is. And once you're on the railroad tracks, it's as if you can't even stop the train going down to that sin. So how do you stop it? Don't get on the tracks in the first place. That means you cut it out. That means, you know, I would date myself if I said, uh, you know, remove the TV from the house because everybody watches Netflix now. And it's all the internet, right? Put internet software on your computer and on your network. Net nanny. Be wise about those things. Don't give an opportunity for the flesh. Cut it out. Be drastic. Say no to certain relationships and friends. You may have a desire to lead them to Christ, but if they constantly lead you into sin, don't be deceived. Paul teaches, bad company corrupts good morals. It's hard. I remember I had to do that in my own life. All of my sports friends, my soccer buddies I played with, into college. I had to cut most of them out of my life because even though I wanted to see them come to Christ, they were a far worse influence on me than me on them. And it was incredibly painful. It was like an amputation. And then, crowded out. Isaiah 6, you know that passage. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that the one whom he saw was the Lord Jesus, his pre-incarnate glory, God the Son. And Isaiah says, I'm done. Romans 12 do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Crowd it out. Put yourself in the way of truth. Be transformed by the Word of God. Fill your spare time and your leisure time with the things of God, serving your brothers and sisters in love rather than serving the flesh. And you'll give no occasion. I don't know if it was good or bad, but growing up our youth ministry in high school... Uh, they decided to have youth group on Friday nights. And the reason they had it on Friday nights was because strategically they knew teenagers in Vallejo used Friday nights to do sin of all sorts. And they felt like they wanted to have a place that was a competition, a competing place 
for the sin of Vallejo to come and have fun without regret in a youth ministry to hear Christ preach, to hear the Word of God spoken, and to do discipleship. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't like it being on Friday nights because I wanted to go hang out on Friday nights. I mean, it's Friday night. And yet one thing that was so good for me in having a regular place on Friday night where I had to make a decision, was I going to go hang out with my soccer buddies or go to youth group? It made that battle very clear. And it set a pattern in my life that was very helpful to me at a young age. This is what we're to do. We're to starve it out. We're to cut it out. We're to crowd it out. The Christian life can't be lived coasting in cruise control. It just can't. We have to, we're in a battle. We have to take steps to do this. The wonderful news about it, though, is it's freedom to do this because of the Spirit of God living in us, and we're propelled and we're motivated by love. Christ's love for us, the cross. It is not, you know, it's not that we're set free to just live however we want. We're free now to serve the body of Christ in love. See, living by the Spirit is the root. Walking by the Spirit is the fruit. That's what he says in verse 24. If you live by the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And that fruit is nothing less than Christ in our character and therefore in our conduct. And he says in verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. You see, because I think Paul has in his mind, verse 26, For we belong to Christ. We're not our own anymore. And Christ is the example, and Christ's life was a life marked by humility and service. This is what Paul said in Philippians 2. Have this mindset that was in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2. In fact, turn over there. We have time to look at this. Verse 3. Do not do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you hear the same message? We shouldn't be provoking one another out of envy and conceit. We should humbly be serving one another in love because this is what Christ did. We heard it. Nathan read it this morning. He washed His disciples' feet. In fact, Jesus says this is what greatness in the kingdom looks like. Because Christ humbled Himself to that point, the point of death, even the death of a cross, Paul says, therefore God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name above all names. And Jesus says if we practice that same pattern in our lives, if we want to be great in God's kingdom, 
Matthew 20, 26. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. So I would just encourage you this morning to practice greatness in the kingdom. And how do we practice greatness? By being a servant of all. And this is what true Christian freedom is. It's what it looks like. So when you come in in the morning and you see these men and women who are so faithful to set up this church and to serve you, to set up these chairs, to get the food and the the refreshments ready, to set up the sound system, to, to do all of these things, and as they put everything away afterwards, they're practicing greatness in the kingdom. It's freedom. Nobody's paying them. Nobody's twisting their arm and compelling them. I wish I would twist more of your arms and compel you. Uh, that, that you would just have this desire in you, but I can't rule by guilt or fear or motivate by those things. It doesn't work. We motivate by the gospel. You need to be set free in Christ to love and serve. But I would plead with you to practice greatness in the kingdom, to be a servant of all. As Paul says there at the end of Galatians 5.26, we don't want to be characterized by becoming conceited and provoking one another and envying one another. Have this same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. I love Peter. He had that change of mind, didn't he? He said, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. Jesus. You're too good for that. Don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, hey, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have a part of me. He said, oh, well then wash everything. Just wash me all over because I want a part of you. I want you. That ought to be our attitude. Not the first part. The second part. I don't want to be conceited in thinking that somehow I deserve anything that was given to me. Every good and perfect gift, James says, comes down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift. Nothing I have in my life, I deserve. It's a good and perfect gift from my Father in heaven, in Christ. And how we need to keep in step with His Spirit in us, being led by the Spirit, waging war against the desires of the flesh so that they don't produce the works of the flesh in our lives. Father, thank You for this time. What an important message to hear this morning. Father, I don't know what my brothers and sisters are tempted with today. What desires are in their heart. What works of the flesh would be produced today. Perhaps this is divine intervention that You would speak this message to their hearts this morning and turn them from sin. Oh, that You would do it in my life, Father. How I need to hear this message preached to my own heart. We've not arrived. Our sufficiency is in Christ. Thank You for Him. We want to sing about Him and His glory now and His finished work and preach the Gospel to one another and encourage one another with it. In Jesus' name, Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.